Welcome to A Portrait of Jesus with Dr. Bill Creasy. Tens of thousands of you have already listened to Dr. Creasy's one-year Bible, 76 five-star lessons that take you through the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation. Now Dr. C drills down and uncovers the most important person in Scripture, Jesus. With his characteristic wisdom and wit, Dr. Creasy introduces you to Jesus, not simply as a figure in the Bible or someone you meet in church, but as a living and breathing person, perhaps the most significant person who ever lived. You're going to love this series, and it's free for our listeners. So we left off last time with Jesus' baptism. Uh, John baptizing Jesus in the Jordan River opposite Jericho, and that's where we stopped, I think. But I'd like to go back and look at that one more time very quickly and make a transition from that point. Now I'm turning over to Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 9. And about that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately, Jesus was coming up out of the water and he saw the heavens being torn open and the Holy Spirit descending into him like a dove. And the verbs are all at the very same time. This is all happening simultaneously. So John's putting him down in the water, lifting him back up, and as he's coming up, put the camera into slow motion. And you see the water coming off of his hair as he's coming up out of the water. At the very same time, the heavens are torn open. The Greek verb is schizo, like schizophrenic, violently torn open, and the Holy Spirit descending into him, head all the way down. And the voice at the very same time is saying, this is my son, listen to him. And John can literally feel the Holy Spirit going right down through Jesus. What a dramatic scene. And once he's upright, we read, and immediately the Holy Spirit drove him out into the desert. And he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals and angels attended him. So we have the temptation. Now, let's look at that temptation in a little bit of detail. If we turn over to Matthew chapter 3, uh, sorry, chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4, we read, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Now, after having fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Well, yeah, I guess. 40 days and 40 nights, no food. The tempter came to him and said, if you're the son of God, now I'm not saying you are, but if you are. Now you might remember way back in our first evening together, we started with the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Remember that? And what was it Satan said to Eve? And I acted it out up here. Leaning against that tree, he said, did God really say you're not to eat from any tree in the garden? And Eve said, well, he did say we may eat from any of the trees, but not this one, right? That, that sense of incredulity. Did God really say? Well, here he is now saying, if you're the son of God, not saying you are, but if you are, tell these stones to become bread. 
Well, after 40 days of eating nothing, that would be a pretty good temptation. And if you've traveled in Israel with me or anyone else, you know there are rocks everywhere. How are people killed in the Bible? They're stoned to death because there are rocks lying everywhere. If you clear a field to plant, what do you do with all the rocks? You build a wall, all stone walls around the fields. And it seems to grow stones because every year they have to clear more stones. But turn these stones into bread. Well, you could feed not only yourself, but the whole world. Imagine, cure world hunger. And Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So he quotes scripture. Now, Satan knows scripture as well. If you were Satan and you waged war against God and you lost that war and were cast out of heaven and now you're going to undermine God's creation and you know that this book is the word of God, wouldn't you study every single word of it and know it backward and forward? We do. We know how the story is going to turn out and he does too and he tries to change it. Jesus throws scripture at him. And then the devil took him to the holy city Jerusalem, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple, the pinnacle of the temple. If you've been to Jerusalem, when you stand at the southwestern corner of the temple platform, the temple mount, all the way up top, that's where the pinnacle of the temple was. That was the highest point. And the stone, the pinnacle stone, at which the priests would blow the shofar to call people to prayer, the high point in the city. That pinnacle stone in AD 70, when the temple was destroyed and collapsed, that pinnacle stone fell down, boom, and hit the pavement of Jesus' day and cracked the pavement, really caved it in, and it cracked the stone. All that was buried until the 1990s when they excavated that southwestern corner and the southern area of the temple platform. And today, when we go there, you can see the pinnacle stone lying there. It's a replica. The original is in the Israel Museum. And it has the written on it in Hebrew, the place of trumpeting. That's the stone that he takes him to. So he took him there and put him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Well, Jesus answered, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. I wonder if he's referring to the Lord your God, his father, or the Lord your God himself. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. He said, all this I will give to you if you bow down and worship me. I'll give you all of it. Jesus said, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. So three times Satan tempts Jesus, just like he tempted Eve. 
with a fruit that's pleasant to the eyes, good to taste, and will give you wisdom. It will make you like us, he said. The temptations are the very same, good for food, pleasing to the eye, casting off and the angels catching you, and you will have everything that I have, all the world, all the worldly goods. So Satan has no new tricks in his book. This is the very same set of temptations that he used with Eve, and he uses it on Jesus. Well, she and Adam fell, he didn't. Now, right after the temptation, we turn over to John chapter one. And we cover this briefly last time, but I'll transition into it. So John chapter one, John the Baptist is in Jericho opposite the Jordan River. If you drive from Jericho down a little one and a half lane road east, it takes about 10 minutes to get to the river. You could walk it in probably half an hour uh, about. And uh, that's where John is, down by the Jordan River. Jericho's a pretty big city, and there's our scene. So after he said, uh, uh, the, the leaders, the religious leaders came from Jerusalem, you know, are you the prophet, are you the Messiah, and so on? No, I'm not. And he said, but there's one among you that you do not know, one in your midst you do not know, he is the one. And I noted last time that this is right after Jesus, he was baptized, he went out into the wilderness for 40 days, now he's come back. He was baptized on Passover, the Jewish feast of Passover, all the pilgrims coming down, and 40 days later, he comes back in right in time for Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, and the pilgrims are coming again. So he's right there on the edge of the crowd, right on the edge. And John said, in your midst stands one you do not know. And he winked at Jesus over there, and Jesus winked back, I'll bet. Now, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself didn't know him. But the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Well, most certainly John did know him, and we covered this last week. John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. He's the son of Zachariah and Elizabeth, and Elizabeth is a relative of Mary. So they're cousins. They know each other. They grew up together. They played together. But John didn't know him. He knew him. The Greek word is oida. It's factual information. I know this is a bookmark. But gnosko is a deep down, gut level, experiential knowledge. John knew him most certainly, but he didn't truly comprehend who he was until that baptism scene in Mark. And then he went, holy cow. Now I get it. So I didn't know him until then. And then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him alluding to what we read in Mark. I would not have known him except for that. I would not have known him 
except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen, I understand, I get it, and I testify that this is the Son of God. The next day, so John baptizes a truckload more people and comes back the next day. John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, Lamb of God. And when his two disciples heard this again, they followed Jesus. Now, picture the scene. Jesus is walking toward them. John the Baptist and two of his disciples will learn that it was our apostle John, later on, who writes the gospel, and Peter's brother, Andrew. Peter and Andrew, James and this John, are partners in a fishing business up in Galilee, along with the father of James and John, Zebedee. So they had all come down together, and they're staying at the, uh, uh, the Hyatt Regency in Jericho in room 630. And uh, here they are, they're going with John again, walking down toward the Jordan River, Jesus coming the other way. Look, Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they turned and followed him. So Jesus passed by, and then Andrew and John say to John the Baptist, we'll catch up with you later. And they turn and they fall in behind Jesus and follow him. Now, if later tonight you were here, you were helping to clean up and staying late, and you walked out to the parking lot, and three men walked past you and said hello, and you kept going, and then two of them turned and began following you in the parking lot, what might you think? <laughs> That's not a good thing, right? So Jesus turned to them, and he said, what do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said, come, I'll show you. I'm staying at the Hyatt too, in room 513. <laughs> so they went and they saw where he was staying. And they spent the day with him. Now they were going out to the Jordan River in the morning to baptize more people who were crossing over the Jordan, coming from the north, going up to Jerusalem for Pentecost. But they spent the day with him. Now imagine spending the entire day, oh, let's say from eight o'clock in the morning until five o'clock in the evening, in the room with Jesus. What did they talk about? They were there the whole time. I would love to have been there with them. They went, they saw where he was staying and they spent the day, it was about the 10th hour, that is around 10 in the morning when they got there. Now, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus, Andrew and John the other. The first thing Andrew did was find his brother, Simon Peter, and he said to him, we've found the Messiah. So they spend the day with Jesus up until, say, five o'clock, and then Jesus said, I have a few more things I need to do. It was great meeting you guys, and, uh, and I'll catch up with you later. So Andrew and John 
went to their room where Peter was. I'll bet Peter wondered what ever happened to Andrew and John. And they opened the door, put the key card in, right? Open the door. And Peter is lying on the bed with a uh, Diet Coke and a bag of Cheetos watching CNN. And, uh, and he looked up and, where have you guys been? And they said, you won't, you, you won't believe this. We have found the Messiah. Yeah, right. No, we have. Come with us. So they went back to the room, the three of them. And they get to the door, and they knock on Jesus' door. And he came to the door and opened it. And he looked at them. He spent the whole day with Andrew and John. And they must have talked about their brother Peter because Jesus said, Oh, you must be Simon, son of John. From now on, you'll be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. From now on, you'll be the rock. Well, as we'll find out, Peter was the opposite of the rock. He was a mercurial personality for sure. But they bring him to Peter, and then I'll bet they spent the rest of the evening talking some more. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, and finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. So Jesus has to get back to Galilee. In fact, he has an appointment up there in Cana. He has a wedding invitation, and he's got to show up for it. So he's going to head back. Finding Philip, apparently Philip, he had already met Philip. They had agreed they'd walk back together. It's about a 90-mile walk. Uh, cross back over the Jordan River at Jericho, that direction. Walk north, parallel to the Jordan River, up to Beit Shan. Cross back over at Beit Shan, across the Jezreel Valley, up the Nazareth Ridge, and there you are, about 90 miles. He had met Philip, they agreed they would all walk back together, so Philip is in the lobby of the Hyatt, and he was, uh, he was reading, just waiting. He had his bag packed, he's waiting for everybody else, and uh, he said, Philip, let's go, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Bethsaida is about, well, if you think of the Sea of Galilee, picture it in your mind, it's shaped like a harp, or more accurately, like a pork chop, ironically. <laughs> and at the top, like at 12 o'clock at the very top, a little bit to the right, and about a mile north, is uh, Bethsaida. We visit Bethsaida when we travel to Israel. It's an archaeological site. And uh, we go there, we tell the whole story about that's the home of Peter, Andrew, James, and, and John. Later, Peter and Andrew moved to Capernaum with Peter's mother-in-law in the extended family's house, but they're from Bethsaida. So that's where they're going to head. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. So Philip found Nathanael and told him, we've found the one Moses wrote about in the law. Remember Deuteronomy 18, verse 15? Uh, Moses said, a prophet like me will arise and you must listen to him. We found the guy, the one Moses wrote about. Jesus of Nazareth, a son of Joseph. And Nathaniel said, Nazareth? 
What good could come from Nazareth? Now, there are two reasons for saying that. Nazareth was a tiny village on a finger ridge in the, Jez in the Jezreel Valley up in Galilee. It was in the boondocks. It had maybe 20 extended families, a couple hundred people at most. Not, not important at all. It would be like my coming back next week and saying, you're not going to believe it. Ann and I drove up north and we were going through Barstow and we stopped to get gas. Jesus has returned and he's living in Barstow. <laughs> right, I'm sure. Nazareth, you gotta be kidding me. But the other reason is, Nazareth, Galilee. Galilee, the Northern Territory, was a hotbed of radical revolutionary thought. Every single revolutionary movement in the first century AD in Palestine originated in Galilee. And when Jesus rode into Jerusalem later on on Palm Sunday and uh, someone said, who's that? Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, one of them. They were the radicals. They were the revolutionaries. It would be like John. Well, when John introduced me here the first night, he said, uh, Dr. Creasy taught at UCLA for 28 years and, and all this stuff. And with that came expectations about who's the, who's the guy standing up there, right? What if he had said, uh, Dr. Creasy taught for 28 years at UC Berkeley? That would have a different set of connotations, right? Jesus of Nazareth? Oh, one of those. And indeed, Jesus is a radical revolutionary. He truly is. He, oh, wait until you see him go after the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the established religion of his day. Nazareth, what good could come from there? And Philip said, no, come and meet him, come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael approach, he said, now here is a genuine Israelite in whom there's nothing false, no guile, no deceit, no deception. What a weird thing to say. Imagine I meet you tonight for the very first time and I'm introduced to you by John and, and I said, well, now here's an authentic American in whom there's no trickery. How, why would I say that? What would that mean? Here's a genuine Israelite in whom there's no guile. And Nathaniel asked, how do you know me? Apparently there's something going on that Nathaniel understands, but we don't yet. And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Under the fig tree is an, an idiomatic expression for I saw you while you were reading. You know, under the fig tree, sitting in the shade, reading, nice day. I saw you while you were reading. So Nathaniel was in the lobby too. He had his bag packed, and apparently he had picked up a scroll while they were in Jerusalem, and he was just waiting for everybody else, and he was reading. I saw you reading. What was he reading? We'll find out. Nathaniel said, if, if you knew that, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. And Jesus said, 
You believed because I told you I saw you reading. You'll see greater things than that. I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So what was Nathaniel reading? He was reading the story of Jacob in Genesis when Jacob left home, ran off, and he was going up to Haran with Uncle Laban, and on the way he stopped at Bethel for the night, a campsite, and he laid down, and he slept with his head on a rock, and he had a dream. You'd have a dream too if you slept with your head on a rock. And what was the dream? He saw a ladder going up to heaven with the angels of God ascending and descending on it. That's what he was reading. And when Jesus said, now here's an Israelite in whom there is no guile. What Israelite has the most guile? Old Jacob. He cheated everyone. He tricked everyone. He cheated his brother Esau out of his birthright. He cheated his father. He cheated Uncle Laban. He cheated everybody. He was the epitome of guile. Here's a genuine Israelite in whom there is no guile. Well, if Nathaniel had been reading that story, he knew what I was reading and what I was thinking. You must be the son of God. And Jesus confirmed it by saying, you'll see more than that. You'll see the angels of God ascending and descending on me. We know what he was reading in this story. Now, they head uh, in chapter 2 of John. So they head back up to Galilee. And they cross over the Jordan River, parallel the Jordan, up to Beit Shan, across the Jezreel Valley, and up the Nazareth Ridge. About 90 miles, three-day walk for adult men walking with a purpose. So on the third day, as they get to Nazareth, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Well, Jesus and Mary had been invited to the wedding in Cana. Remember we talked about Cana, I think, last time? Nazareth, up on the ridge about three miles northeast of Nazareth is Cana. And about like a triangle to the west is Sepphoris, that town that was being built at the time. And I think that's why Joseph was living in Nazareth because he was working on that building project. And so would be the people of Cana. So somebody's getting married and there's a big wedding going about to happen. And everybody was invited, everybody from Cana, all the people from the worksite in Sephora, people in Nazareth. In the Middle East, in Israel, in Egypt, in any of the Middle Eastern countries, a wedding is a really big deal. We have a wedding here. You have a wedding at church. And there's the ceremony, uh, maybe a, a, a reception, a dinner of some kind, either here or out at a, another venue. And then the couple go off on a honeymoon, and that's the end of the wedding. But in the Middle East, a wedding lasts like a week. Anna and I have friends, Palestinian friends. They live here now, but their family is still in Bethlehem. Their daughter was getting married to a man who lived in Bethlehem, and the wedding was going to be in Bethlehem. Oh, we heard all about the planning for the wedding. The planning went on for months. And finally, when the wedding happened, it was like, 
everybody in Bethlehem was invited to it. There were like, what, what, what did uh, Naveen say, like 1,500 people at the wedding? 800 at the wedding. But it went on for days. And they had, they had whole roasted lambs, and, and it just kept going on. Everybody from Bethlehem, all the friends, all the neighbors, everybody. It was a really big deal. And if you're planning a big wedding like that, you don't do it all by yourself. You have a wedding planner. They did back then too, right? Somebody to make all the arrangements, make sure the food was there, everything's where it's supposed to be, the entertainment was there. So apparently, this was going to be a really big deal. And Jesus and Mary had been invited to the wedding. Jesus met these guys in Jericho, and they're walking back, and I think right up about Beit Shan, where they're gonna cross back over the Jordan River, Jesus would have gone northwest to the Nazareth Ridge. The others would have gone north to the Sea of Galilee up to Capernaum and Bethsaida. So they would have split up at that point. Now, if you had been walking with Jesus for two days on the trail, and can you imagine being with him and walking with him and, and he put his arm around you and told some stories and jokes and you had a grand old time together? You're walking with Jesus. Talk about walking in the footsteps of Jesus. You're right there with him. When you got to Beit Shan and he said, well, I guess this is it. I got to go to a wedding and you guys are headed home. And they all thought, oh man. And Jesus said, you want to come to a wedding? Yeah. <laughs> so they do. They go with, they weren't invited to the wedding. Nobody knew them in Cana. So he invites them to the wedding. And there they go. Jesus and his disciples have been invited. Well, Jesus had been invited, but he invited the disciples. And we know, and there were more than a few. Now, when the wine was gone, when the wine was gone, you got a wedding planner here, right? and we're gonna meet the guy actually, the master of the banquet, right? He would have ordered the wine. And it's in Cana. And I told you before that Sephoris, the new town that was being built, that's the Napa Valley of Israel. That's where the best wine is, is produced. And they ran out of wine. And Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, I, I can't do this, but like raise one eyebrow. My mother could do that. And when she raised an eyebrow at you, you were in trouble. And Mary said, they have no more wine, eyebrow going up. <laughs> Why would she say that to him unless somehow it was his fault? He brought all these uninvited guests <laughs> and they ran out of wine. He said, why do you involve me? And she raised that eyebrow again. Uh, no. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Six jars of, say, 20 gallons each. That's what? Six times 20, 120 gallons? Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the top. And then he told them, now draw some out 
and take it to the master of the banquet, the wedding planner. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, and he didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside, and he said, I made a terrible mistake. Um, everyone brings out the best wine first, and then about the third day of the banquet, when everybody's <laughs> drunk, <laughs> we bring out the tubachuk. <laughs> but I'm really sorry. I got the tubachuk out first, and the best wine last. He didn't know. This, the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. He made 120 gallons of wine. These people put away a lot of wine. <laughs> and, uh, and it was the best wine, the best. Now the wedding's over. Time to go home now. He and Mary would go back to Nazareth. The other guys would go back up to the Sea of Galilee. But right before they're about ready to depart, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother, Mary, and brothers and disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So after the walk from Jericho, after the wedding at Cana, several days at Cana, going through gallons and gallons of wine, Peter said to Jesus, you want to come to an after party? <laughs> and they go to Capernaum together, where they stay for three more days. I'll bet they had quite the time there. Well, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went to Jerusalem in the Gospel according to John. But turn back with me to Matthew. We'll pick up our story there. Matthew, oops. At chapter... 4, verse 18. After the after party, Jesus went back to Nazareth. But then, he goes back to Capernaum again, a little bit later. I don't know, maybe six months, a year later. He had thought about all this. And Jesus and John the Baptist were cousins. And we learn a little bit later that John and his brother James, John and James, the sons of Zebedee, Peter, Andrew, John, James, the fishing business partners, and the father, that James and John's mother, Salome, was either a sister or sister-in-law of Mary. So James and John are Jesus' cousins as well. So he knew them as family. Why does he relocate to Capernaum? Well, he had relatives there, James and John. He had met Peter and Andrew, their business partners. They got along fine. They had a grand old time. And if you look at a map of, of Israel and go down to the bottom to Egypt, the Nile River flows north from the mountains in southern Africa uh, all the way north and empties out into the Mediterranean in the Nile Delta. 
Where Cairo is today, uh, that's where Ramses was. Uh, it's not even an archaeological site anymore, it's all, all gone. But that was the center, the commercial center of, of Egypt. And from that point, two roads, two international trade routes left Egypt. Because Egypt was the food production center of the ancient world. No matter what happened anywhere else, the Nile River would inundate every year, fertilizing all the banks of the Nile, 4,000 mile long river, and the Delta. And you could count on it. Every year that's going to happen. So that was the food production center. That food would then be shipped north, not south, but north, and the first road coming out of Egypt, out of the Nile Delta, was the Via Maris, Via Way Maris Sea, the way of the sea, it paralleled the Mediterranean. Up the coast to Megiddo, where it would cut across the Jezreel Valley, parallel the Sea of Galilee on the west side, and then continue north up to Damascus. The other trade route came out of the same place, but straight across the Sinai Peninsula to the eastern mountain range, and then all the way up where it met the Via Maris at Damascus, and from there out into the rest of the world. They were the two major international trade routes, with three linking roads north, uh, west to east right there in Israel, three major linking roads. When we study the story of King David, David forges a loose confederation of 12 tribes into a united monarchy, and he does so through warfare. All the battles David fights are to control strategic locations on the trade routes. And once David controls the Via Maris, the King's Highway, and the three linking roads, he's got the makings of a country. All the battles he fights are to do that. So here we have uh, the Via Maris going right past Capernaum and up north and out to the rest of the world. If you want to get the message out, the gospel message, where do you go to do it? Not out in the middle of the desert. You go to the, inter the intersection of the 5 and the 405, where all the traffic is. So going to Capernaum, Jesus could teach and preach in all those little towns up there, and all the travelers passing through would hear him and take the message up north. It made perfect sense. And he has relatives there and good friends. In fact, he'll live at Peter's house for three years with Peter, right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. So, he relocates to Capernaum. And as Jesus was walking along beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. Of course, he knew them, he's living with Peter. They were commercial fishermen. They have at least two boats that we encounter, maybe more. They didn't fish for dinner, they fished commercially. The Sea of Galilee produced a, two types of fish. One, one is uh, uh, catfish and they get really big because they're not kosher. Jews don't eat them, right? So they just grow and grow and grow. I've seen like three foot long catfishes in the uh, Sea of Galilee. But they have a, a, a fish, we call it St. Peter's fish today, but it's a type of tilapia. And it, it was native to the Sea of Galilee. Only the Sea of Galilee and Lake Victoria, Africa. Only place you had that type. Why? Because way back in geological time, they were connected. Right, the tectonic plates were right there. Later, everything shifts. But the Sea of Galilee and Lake Victoria were connected at one time in geological time. Once it split, the fish in the Sea of Galilee, the fish in Lake Victoria are the same fish. Kind of cool. And, uh, but they fish commercially. 
If you go from Capernaum, which is about 11 o'clock on the Sea of Galilee, and you head south around the bend, about a 10-minute drive or 30 or 45-minute walk, you come to Magdala. That's where Mary Magdalene was from, Mary of Magdala. That was where they processed the fish. So all the commercial fishing came into Magdala, or Migdal, and it was processed there, and then shipped out north on the Via Maris, which ran right past Magdala. So it was a good place to be. So he's walking along, uh, along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and, uh, and he saw Peter and, and Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake. Uh, they were fishermen. And he said, come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Now, he didn't approach too many never met before. He's living at Peter's house. But Jesus never said, come follow me, and everybody dropped everything and followed him. He got to know them. Look how he's gotten to know these people. Two cousins, their business partners, Peter and Andrew, he met them in Jericho. They walk all the way back together. They go to a week-long party, wedding party. Then they have an after party at Capernaum, and then Jesus goes home. Later he comes back, he's living with Peter. Get to know me. And that's how you evangelize people. You don't shake your Bible at them or preach at them. You get to know them. Know them personally. And through that relationship, they come to know you and they come to know Christ through you. That's how you evangelize. And that's exactly what's going on here. How many times, how many nights had uh, Jesus gone out in the boat because they fish at night to bring the boats in in the morning, clean the nets. And uh, how many nights had Jesus gone out in the boat? With them. With Peter, Andrew, other guys who worked for them. They were throwing the nets out, fishing, going to Migdal, Magdala, and turning the fish over at the processing plant. And they would sit out there and talk. You know, throw the nets out. You don't do anything until they're fishing the nets. And they would talk. Many nights, I'll bet. Come back in in the morning, have a little breakfast, take a nap. But finally he said, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And they do. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, partners in the business. He knew them really well. They were cousins. They were in the boat with Zebedee, and they left the boat and followed him too. So now the four partners, two of Jesus' cousins, two of his good friends, they're now together. We continue. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So that was his mission, to teach preach and heal. The teaching and preaching, I get that. But why the healing? Why the miracles? No person can perform a miracle. No one can. Only God can perform a miracle. And if God chooses to perform a miracle through you, it suggests that you have a very intimate relationship with God. And the greater the miracle, the more implied intimacy. And what's the greatest miracle of all? raising the dead. How many people raise the dead? 
Elijah, Elisha, and Jesus. Elijah raises a dead child. Elisha raises a dead child. Jesus raises a dead child, Jairus' daughter. He raises a dead young man, the widow of Nain's son. And he raises Lazarus, who's been rotting in the tomb for four days. He really outdid Elijah and Elisha, right? The greater the miracle, the more implied intimacy. He's the son of God. The miracles tell us that. The miracles validate who he is. So why listen to him teaching and preaching? Because it's followed up by these miraculous healings. Holy cow, we have somebody really important here. Someone really close to God. And he went throughout Galilee doing that. Josephus, Flavius Josephus, who was a Jew who lived from the, the 30s, AD 30s, into the AD 90s. Uh, he was a Jew who ultimately worked for the Romans. He was a Roman military officer. And uh, he wrote a book, two books, well, three. But he wrote The Jewish Antiquities, History of the Jewish People, and he wrote The Jewish Wars. Uh, the Jewish Wars being AD 66 to 72, the Great Jewish Revolt. And he wrote those two really important books. And in the antiquities, Josephus knew Galilee. That was his command area when he was with the Roman military. He knew that area. And he writes in the antiquities that there are 204 towns and villages in Galilee. He knew. He was a military guy. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching, preaching, and healing. How many of the 204 towns and villages did he go to? I don't know, maybe all of them? For sure, a whole lot of them. And they got to know him. Well, what did he teach? Well, news about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, suffering severe pain, demon-possessed, having seizures, the paralyzed. He healed them all. Tremendous signs of his intimacy with God. And if he could do that, we should listen to him when he teaches. Large crowds from Galilee, from the Decapolis. The Decapolis, Deca is 10, right? Polis is cities, 10 cities. If you're up on the Sea of Galilee, on the Mount of Beatitudes, how many people have been on the Mount of Beatitudes? Oh, not that, you've you all been there with me. Uh, <laughs> We need to go. <laughs> uh, when you're up there on the Mount of Beatitudes, looking down at the Sea of Galilee, at the kind of 12 o'clock to 10 o'clock or 9 o'clock area, over on the other side, the eastern side, is the Golan Heights. And on the Golan, nine Gentile Greek Greco-Roman cities were on the Golan Heights. The tenth one was Beit Shan, which is on the left. That was the fording point that we talked about. So there were ten... Gentile, Greco-Roman cities over there on the Golan. That's the Decapolis, the ten cities, the ten Gentile cities. And from Judea and regions all, all around the Jordan. So he was teaching and preaching, and people were coming from everywhere to hear him. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. The Mount of Beatitudes. That's where he'd go. 
When you're at Capernaum on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, about 11 o'clock, he went up into the hills. There's only one hill to go up. If you're standing there with your back to the Sea of Galilee, directly behind you in Capernaum, and you look up and a little bit left, like 10 o'clock, it goes up to a mountaintop, not a mountain, a hilltop. That's the Mount of Beatitudes. And from there, you get a panoramic view of the whole, of the whole lake. That's where he went, and he taught there. Now, when we travel to Israel, we go to the Mount of Beatitudes. Our first stop when we get to Galilee, first morning in Israel. We arrive late afternoon, drive up to Galilee, have dinner, stay overnight. You have breakfast here in San Diego, and uh, dinner in San Diego, and breakfast on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Incredible. But then we go up the next morning to the Mount of Beatitudes. That's our introduction. And when you look from the top down to the lake, if you walk down that hill and you get to the, near the bottom and turn around and look back up at the Mount of Beatitudes, it's a concave hill, a natural amphitheater. And the breeze blows in from the Mediterranean in the west. It narrows through the Arbel Pass and the breeze always comes in that direction. And I've actually done this, sat our group, walked down the hill, sat our group on the hillside, walked down about 50 yards and taught. I didn't have a microphone, but everybody could hear perfectly. There was a guy in the 1980s who did an acoustical study of that hillside. And the acoustics on that hillside are very much like the Disney Center up in LA. Amazing. And, uh, I, I've, sat, I've stood there, the, the nearest people were out in the courtyard, and they could hear just fine without a microphone. Perfect. That's where he taught the big crowds, on the Mount of Beatitudes. What did he teach? Well, we'll come back and we'll look at the Sermon on the Mount. We hope you enjoyed today's lesson. It's our gift to you. And be sure to check out Dr. Creasy on LogosBibleStudy.com for a treasure trove of truly in-depth teaching verse by verse through the entire Bible, Genesis through Revelation.